1: Observers look around and think they may be seeing Cold War II in cyberspace, but this is no bipolar conflict. Investigations into Vault 7 continue as people wonder where WikiLeaks gets its leaks. The quiz app Wishbone has been breached. Take it as a teachable moment with the children. Fileless malware gets quieter as researchers get close to the cyber gang. A cloud based keylogger is getting ready to take black market share. The proposed Active Cyber Defense Certainty Act, and what we're seeing at a policy competition. I'm Dave Bittner in Baltimore with your Cyberwire summary for Friday, March 17, 2017. An increasing operational tempo in international cyber conflict induces some observers to see the beginning of a new Cold War. Poland sees an uptick in attacks on sites in that country that have some connection with U.S.-Polish combined operations. Many of those sites belong to towns and cities that have hosted U.S. forces. Nor are smaller countries immune. Luxembourg's government reports to Parliament that it's seeing more attacks by state-sponsored actors than it formerly did. It's worth mentioning that Luxembourg is a country that tends to punch above its 999-square-mile size— with an active cert and institutions that play an important role in the international economy. If this is indeed a new Cold War, cyber operations, low barriers to entry, and the disparate national interests in play make Cold War II much more multipolar than the original was. See the U.S. indictment of FSB officers in the Yahoo hack, but see also recent Turkish operations against sites in the Netherlands and Germany. One similarity a new Cold War seems to bear on the old one, much of the chill is manifest in propaganda, now called information operations. One difference may be the convergence of information operations with covert and clandestine work. A Washington Post op-ed looks at WikiLeaks's Vault 7 and believes it discerns the root cause of the U.S. intelligence community's security problems, too many contractors. But exactly how this amounts to a weakness in practice isn't really specified. The lead that there have been a number of leaks traced to government personnel is buried. Chelsea Manning, formerly of the United States Army, is mentioned in passing as one counterexample. One might also consider that leaks concerning Stuxnet emanated from some senior government officials. Turning to cybercrime, the popular quiz app Wishbone has sustained a breach. 2.2 million email addresses and 287,000 mobile numbers, many if not most of them belonging to teenagers. They've turned up for sale in dark web markets. Wishbone said that the information exposed includes usernames, real names or nicknames provided during registration, email addresses and telephone numbers. Optional information that was also exposed includes dates of birth, but Wishbone says no passwords, user communications or financial account information were compromised in the incident. Third-party researchers, however, say they've also seen gender among the lost data. The incident should provide parents with further incentive to warn their children of the dangers of online data aggregation and identity theft. Children and teens are unlikely to readily appreciate the risk of someone, for example, opening accounts with their identity, and they'll need coaching against the temptation to overshare online. Morphosec believes it's traced recent infestations of fileless malware to a common threat actor. The security company doesn't name names, presumably because it doesn't know them, but it's confident there's a single actor or group working from a single platform. Kaspersky and Cisco's Talos Group have been tracking the PowerShell exploit closely. FireEye calls the criminals Fin7 and reported that they were targeting individuals involved in filings with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morphosec engaged the criminals and sought to win their trust, but this seems to have spooked the hoods into at least temporary inactivity. Palo Alto researchers see Nexus Logger, a cloud-based criminal key logger, taking growing black market share. That share is still low, as Nexus Logger has only been observed in a few incidents, about 400 attacks. But since it's a cloud crimeware-as-a-service offering, it can be expected to proliferate rapidly, especially among less-skilled criminals. There's been some recent talk in the U.S. about draft legislation being circulated in the House of Representatives that would authorize certain forms of hacking back, mostly by companies working on attribution and cooperating with law enforcement. This proposed active Cyber Defense Certainty Act would permit victims to access an attacker's computer without authorization, but only to gather information the victim would then share with law enforcement. It's an interesting proposal, but inevitably arrives with some controversy. We heard some comments from Plixer's CEO, Michael Patterson, who's particularly concerned that attribution is so complicated by spoofing that innocents could be targeted. On the other hand, for certain kinds of attacks, the packet is the punishment, as we've been hearing today down at American University. That's right, we're down in Washington today at American University for the Atlantic Council Cyber 912, a cybersecurity competition that focuses on policy as opposed to the more customary and technical Capture the Flag. The scenario, set in 2018, is built around a fictitious but interesting bill, the imagined Cyber Mark and Reprisal Act of 2018. It's timely and interesting. We hope to be able to share the results with you early next week. In the meantime, stand by to repel borders. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. And joining me once again is Rick Howard. he's the Chief Security Officer at Palo Alto Networks and he also leads up their Unit 42 Threat Intel group. Uh, Rick, welcome back. I wanted to uh, touch base on uh, a subject you you were eager to talk about the UAB CTF contest. Uh, fill us in whats this what is this about?
2: Well, at the end of February, uh, Palo Alto Networks and the University of Alabama at Birmingham, I know that's a lot of words to string together. <laughs> Right, we sponsored our first ever joint capture the flag contest, uh, designed to inspire high school students to pursue a career in cybersecurity. So, Palo Alto Network put up twenty thousand dollars of scholarship money, and UAB students, under the watchful eye of Gary Warner and his excellent faculty and staff, organized the event. Now, um, you and I have talked about this before. I heard this on the Cyberwire many times. Uh, there, everybody knows there's a shortage of good cybersecurity talent. Yeah. Um, it is especially true when you consider that the minority populations, especially women, are almost non existent in our field compared to the males. And I was, I was looking up some stuff before the event, and according to Forbes magazine, just 11% of the cybersecurity workforce are women. Compared to about fifty percent from the general professional workforce yeah. and twenty-five percent of the IT workforce, so that's not good.
1: No, and, and it doesn't seem to be getting better. In fact, it seems uh, some some of the stats that I've seen have shown that we're actually losing women.
2: I know, and uh, we're trying to figure, scratching our heads and trying to figure that out. And it's it's worse when you consider uh, the minorities in women. Are you talking about Native Indians and Hispanics and Blacks? Right. Uh, uh, the American. Uh, Association, the University of Women, says that picture is stark. So that's the bad news. Uh, the good news, though, I think, is that there is a giant opportunity for women in cyber, in the cybersecurity field. But the question is, how do we convince them to pursue it as a career? Now, I've talked to a lot of folks about this, and some of us have a pet theory It says if we are approaching women as they enter college about these opportunities, that is way, way too late. Mm. Um, What we think we should be able to do is reach further down in the education stack to capture their interest at an early stage. So Saturday's Capture the Flag Contest was the first experiment on the way that we might do it. Now, this was just a first step, all right? The winners of the competition, as they matriculate up to UAB for college using the Palo Alto Network scholarship money, Uh, We will engage with them each year, you know, presentations and social events and industry activities, that kind of stuff. And when they graduate, uh, we'll uh, we'll pursue them to offer them jobs if they want to come work for us. So we're going to tweak the contest uh, to try to expand it next year. But uh, it was a good first start, and I'm very happy about uh, what we're trying to do there.
1: All right. Every little bit helps. Uh, Rick Howard, thanks for joining us. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. My guest today is Brian David Johnson. He's the futurist in residence at the Center for Science and the Imagination at Arizona State University a professor in practice at the School for the Future on Innovation in Society, director of the Threat Casting Lab, and a futurist and fellow at Frost & Sullivan, a strategic consulting company, as well as being an applied futurist. Our interest in him comes from his involvement in the Threat Casting Lab, a program from the Army Cyber Institute and in Arizona State University. They recently published a report called A Widening Attack Plane, based on their most recent workshop last fall.
0: Threat casting really started about 10 years ago. As a futurist, I work with organizations to look 10 years out into the future and based on a number of different inputs, model both positive and negative futures. As a part of this, I started doing this thing called threat casting, and I was working at that time with the United States Air Force Academy, training their cadets to take this broad range of inputs and look at possible threats, but not only say these could be the threats in the future, but to turn around and look backwards and backcast and say, how do we disrupt, mitigate, and recover from these threats?
1: And and so take me through the process. How does it work?
0: So we begin by looking at a broad range of multidisciplinary inputs. What's the social science, the eth- ethnographic and, and uh, social science background of the actors who are involved? What, from a technical research standpoint, what will technically be possible 10 years from now? We look at cultural history. Cultural history is incredibly important, not only for the people and the cultures you're looking at, but also for the organizations that you'll be working with. We look at economics. We look at a little bit of trend work. We also do global interviews where we go and talk to people who are actually making the future. And then we also use a little bit of science fiction, science fiction based on science fact to model this out. And we take all of those, and I get together in a room full of practitioners, we take all of those inputs and we model both positive and negative futures. So we look at the possible threats and say, well, what's the best way? that threat could happen, what's the worst way that could happen, and then we turn around and look backwards and say, well, here's an event, an event is the physical or digital instantiation of the threat, and then we model, okay, how could we disrupt, mitigate, or recover from that threat, and then we also think about who are the different people in the broader ecosystem, whether that be government, military, academia, private industry, what steps does each need to take to really secure from that threat?
1: Can you take me through who the players are and what are the things that they all bring to the table?
0: For the for the threat casting that we did in August at West Point, we had a large component of the Army. Again, this was very specifically looking at what does the Army need to do. Um, so we had a, a large representation from the Army. We also had a, a representation from uh, private industry. We had people from places like Citibank, USAA, we had um, also folks from different parts of academia, so for myself, from Arizona State University, but we also had people from California College of Art. We had people from Carnegie Mellon. And then we even had some science fiction authors. We had one of the creators of X-Men. And so all we wanted to make sure that we filled the room with different perspectives. That's one of the most important part of the threat casting. Though, Dave, what I should say is, What we learned in August and what is in this final report is the requirement that we needed to have a much broader participation of people. We began to see very quickly that we're seeing a widening of the attack plane that's actually the name of the report is a widening attack plane that really there's a wide swath of threats that the DOD and the military really can't do anything about that there there's certainly things that they can do but we're beginning to see that we need a broader participation from private industry, from trade associations, from academia, and actually even from private citizens, that everybody has a role to play. And that's really why, as we start to move into the next phase of the project and start to do more of these based in the threat casting lab, we're trying to bring in more and more people as a part not only of the modeling process, but also of then implementing that um, in the real world.
1: So, what does this process provide in the end? What does it what does it provide for the military? What does it provide for for those of us, you know, living our day to day lives? How does this inform uh, what we can do going forward?
0: I think there's multiple ways. And specifically, the the work of um, the Threat Casting Lab is really kind of a, a think tank. That's the best way to that. What we do is we convene a broad group of people, bring them together, use the Threat Casting process to model these possible threats to look backwards and say, what action do we need to take? And then be able to give them to those organizations, so to give them to the military so they can begin to take action, to give them to private industry so they can take them in and take action, to give them to academia so that they can create uh, courses to prepare the next generation, or even to give them to industry trade groups so they can begin to create more training and certification. The whole point is to model the threats and create enough detail so that we can have people take action. And that's really one of the requirements of sort of participation in the lab, is you need to be able to take it back and take action to better secure your uh, business, to better secure certainly the nation, to better secure states and ports and things like that. It's very, very specific. But another thing that we called out that was very important is to understand that for the average citizen, I think for the average citizen, that many folks in the press and many folks in industry and research have done a terrible job looking at the future and talking about cyber threats and digital threats. Oftentimes for the average individual, it is seen as scary and insurmountable. And I think this is a disservice to the average people, to average folks who really want to take action. So one of the things that the the threat casting process is really looking to do is to demystify it, to show that you can do this type of work, you can look out, and even as an individual, you can take very specific actions so that we are empowering both individual people in the public, but we're empowering everybody else to actually go and really make themselves more safe and secure.
1: That's Brian David Johnson, a futurist from the Center for Science and the Imagination at Arizona State University. You can find the threat casting report, Widening the Attack Plane, by searching online for Army Cyber Institute Threat Casting. And that's the Cyberwire. We are proudly produced in Maryland by our talented team of editors and producers. I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening.